Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. It's our great pleasure to welcome onto the podcast this week, author Maggie Shipstead. Now, I would like to make it clear, we don't have favourites here at Mostly Books. However, sometimes a book comes along that you relish so much, it begins incorporating itself into your personality. Such is the case with Maggie's gorgeous novel, Great Circle. Many an unsuspecting customer has had a copy thrust into their hands, followed by a garbled but enthusiastic recommendation from either me or my colleague Aileen. Great Circle was shortlisted for both the Booker Prize and the Women's Prize for Fiction. And Maggie has also penned two previous novels, 2012 Seating Arrangements and 2014's Astonish Me. More recently, she has released a collection of short stories called You Have a Friend in 10A. Maggie Shipstead, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolute pleasure. So as uh, I'm sure you're aware on the podcast, we uh, talk to authors, we talk to people throughout the sort of industry, as it were, about the um, the books that they love. And we always like to start with with childhood and to, to know a little bit about where you grew up and what life was like for young Maggie. Sure. Um, well, I grew up in Southern California. I live in LA now, but I grew up a bit south of there in Orange County, now famous for the Real Housewives. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> yes. It was pretty different in the mid 80s. Yes. Um, my mom was a child development professor, oh, um, okay. and my dad was a lawyer. He's retired now. And yeah, I had like a nice suburban life. And when I was a little bit older, I guess like seven or eight, we moved further out into an area that was just being developed. So it was really mostly kind of open um, chaparral hills uh, and lived there until I left for college. And, and my parents live in San Diego now. So yeah, I was always a big, big reader, you know, as the kid who got in trouble at school for hiding under a table to read. Okay, um, yeah. <laughs> my mom always encouraged it. Um, you know, and, and read to read to me and my brother from from when we were tiny. Yeah. If you're going to be rebellious in any way as a kid, it's kind of, I mean, I can imagine at least for the parents, the best way to be is through just really liking reading. That's a very sort of like wholesome rebel- like yeah, totally. rebellious uh, thing to have. And in terms of, you know, when, you, when you're reading when you're younger, what types of things were you were you reaching for? Did you enjoy sort of the stories about kind of, you know, everyday kids and like the you know people that you could relate to or was it going into fantasy what you know what was the what was the type of thing that you enjoyed I read all kinds of stuff a book that stands out which I think I mentioned to you is this novel called All the Kind Family and it was a novel my mom read to me and she had sort of a canvas bound hardback edition from when it was first published which was in 1951 I think it was hers when she was a child and it's set in 1915 in New York City on the Lower East Side. And it's a, a Jewish family with five daughters. Um, and she read it to me. And then I remember that one as an early book that I 
was sort of compelled to read for myself, you know, sort of slowly working my way through. And I think it, it was one of the first books where I understood the concept of like the world of a book, you know, and how it can sort of encompass and envelop you. Mm. Um, just this different historical period and these little girls who are sort of my age, but living very different existences. Um, and there's a whole series of those books, but I read all kinds of stuff. I read, you know, children's classics. I read crappy series about horses. I was a horseback rider <laughs> into, right, from okay, my childhood yeah. <laughs> into my twenties, you know? And so like all the 50 saddle club books or whatever, I started reading books for adults pretty young, like when I was nine or 10, maybe. I can't remember the first one was. I think it might have been James Harriet, actually. All Creatures Great oh, and Small. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Kind of, yeah, around nine. Um, and so then after that, I would sort of also just read anything. Like, I think that sort of innocence of of just picking up a book and being like, I'll read this is, is impossible to recapture now. But I remember in seventh grade, so when I was 12, doing book reports, kind of back-to-back book reports on Dr. Zhivago and then like oh, a wow. Tom Clancy book. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> My so- <laughs> teacher was like, sure, kid, you know, <laughs> knock yourself out. It's really yeah. anything. That's funny because we have a we have a regular customer who comes in and he sort of gives us book reviews almost weekly on books he's reading. And he's trying to read a classic a month at the moment. And it, his most recent one was Dr. Zhivago. And I think he said he was like, oh, it's great, but it's like, it's quite dense. So I love, <laughs> yeah, I love the idea of like 12 year old you being like, right, let's get into this. Let's this do this. This will make perfect sense to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I also was unbothered by not really getting it like I would read through parts I didn't really understand and just kind of persist and you know I was one of those people who learned a lot of words from context and so to this day you know occasionally I'll say a word out loud and be like wait I've never said I've never heard this word I've only read it I don't know how it's pronounced yeah it's interesting because you say you you sort of wouldn't be able to recapture that and I think it's something actually that freedom of just kind of picking up a book and seeing how you go. And I think as adults, we can really limit ourselves in the sense of, yeah, we have this idea that I have to understand everything on every page. If I'm kind of not getting what's going on or what even the language is doing, I, you know, whatever is, oh, that's a bad thing. But actually, I don't know. I will perfectly admit as someone who reads a, a fair amount then regularly I'm reading stuff and I'm thinking, wait, do, do I understand what's happening here like, for a moment? But it's not, it doesn't really impact the overall enjoyment of the book. And I think it, I think it's good to have that childlike curiosity when it yeah. comes to it. And it sinks in one way or another, you know, you can understand something partially and that's still understanding, like it still matters. And it's, it's part of what like builds in your consciousness I mean, I think sometimes the only times I can think of when I've been able to just like randomly pull a book off the shelf and read it too is when I've been like at an Airbnb or something and don't have anything yes. to read. It's changing like digital, yeah. you know, like my library app on my phone or whatever, but just be like, what's this? And it's just some random book from, you know, the seventies and it might be great. It might be terrible or both. And that's fine. And I, yeah, I feel conscious of it too. Like, especially you know, spending a year talking about Great Circle and everyone's always like, what are you reading? And there's this underlying anxiety sometimes about like, am I, what am, am I reading cool enough stuff? You know, like, is uh, it, yeah, does yeah, it seem yeah. highbrow? Or like, what if I'm reading just this like mystery because I want to turn off my brain? And so it's, a, it's funny. I mean, some authors have truly cool piles of books on their nightstands and I, I usually don't. <laughs> 
No, it's you certainly don't have to worry about that here because we're <laughs> yeah we're we're super like I think also when you work in a bookshop you don't like sort of put books into a hierarchy you're mm. just like oh what are you, like what are you reading yeah. and we've had you know people sort of shamefully go oh actually as a kid I didn't read books I hated books and I watched a lot of TV and we're like that's fine like tell us about that so yeah we're not going to be like oh you're reading that book are you hmm, mm. well that's not cool I guess um, we'll sell you that one yeah <laughs> yeah exactly we yeah we would be um bad booksellers if we did that and that's another thing as well as I think people do sort of weirdly become conscious of you know how am I reading the right things and it is just about kind of what you fancy at the time and those books where you can sort of um not switch off but you can just enjoy the story they're great like we need more of those in you know this kind of very mad world that we live in like something where you can just be like great let's just get into the story and enjoy it uh very yeah very important and so okay so you're you're reading very variedly when you were younger and and did that would that say did that maintain like into your teens because we tend to find there's you know different people there's a different reaction in their sort of teenage years yeah I think it did um I really kept reading a lot you know like uh by night with a flashlight when I was supposed to be asleep. I don't know how teenagers function. I'm, in retrospect, I'm like, I have no sleep. I was up so yeah. late. School started at 7.45 and was half an hour away. Like, I don't know how I did it. But yeah, I didn't, uh, you know, I, I liked, loved my English classes in high school and had assigned reading, but it didn't sort of seem to take over my reading life. The way once I went to, to university, that was kind of a different story. And I feel like that's yeah, when things yeah. became more complicated, you know, and and sort of purposefully reading more critically and, and yes. having more assigned reading than I could possibly do. And so it just edged out, you know, most of my reading for pleasure. And um, that's taken a long time, especially then, you know, I did, I graduated from Harvard and I had one year and then I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop and so started doing my MFA in fiction. And so then that introduced another layer of sort of critical reading where suddenly you're reading for craft yes, and thinking yeah, yeah. about, you know, fiction in a, in a really different way. And so that changed the way I read as well. And it's been a bit of a rebuilding process um, with my reading life over the years. But I have to say COVID was kind of great for it. I read more books <laughs> in 2020 <laughs> yeah. than uh, I had in years and years, you know, and just kind of like, oh, I'll take this, I'll take that. Just chow it down, read a book every two days was great. I mean, it wasn't great, but that part of it was, was great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've had others say that as well in terms of like, um, you know, focusing on reading or even writing as well, because of course it's quite, a uh, uh, for some, it's quite a lonely thing. You know, you're in a room on your own kind of writing and it kind of helped the focus of <laughs> there's no FOMO when everyone else is, is also yeah. at home <laughs> you know yeah. there's no you know you could just sort of um knuckle down and um and, and get on with it and in terms of because you you've mentioned you did that and I think we have listeners from all over but I think predominantly a lot of our listeners are from the UK because the uh, am I right in saying the Ohio MFA is quite a well like a well-known one in terms of because that, that's a a big thing in the US, isn't it? The uh, MFAs, is it for, for people who are into writing and things? Of, oh, of doing yeah. That? Yeah. I mean, you don't, it's funny there, especially in the early 2000s, there was this big public debate about, you know, 
getting an MFA versus living life. And the two are definitely yes. not mutually exclusive. And I would never say a writer has to get an MFA. Like yeah. it, it's, I usually tell people if, if it's not too disruptive to your life and you can get into a funded program, like a program that pays you, yes, um, yeah. then it's worth going. And that's how it was for me. You know, I, I was, I didn't really know I wanted to be a writer. Like I, I finished college and I was like, I don't know what to do. And so it sort of occurred to me to apply to Iowa and I didn't think I would get in. And I thought I'd sort of do my homework and apply to other programs the following year. And so then I got in and suddenly I had two years where I was being told where to be and what to do. And I was funded. And so for me, it was great. I had done very little fiction writing before I got there, just some in college. Um, and then it really accelerated my learning curve. It was really useful. Um, and I can't, you know, it's true. You can't teach someone to write good fiction, but you can certainly help, you know, and, yes. and that's what yeah, I think yeah. good MFAs do. And it's true. There's a real proliferation of them in the U S and it, it is, it's not, not a problem. You know, it's, they're churning out hundreds at least, you know, of graduates a year and it, you know, plenty of programs, no one ever publishes a book or, you know, other places people publish books, but can't get teaching jobs and then do other things anyway. And so it's, it's part of a, a, you know, system that's still, everything's still very difficult, like, you know, in terms of publishing or, or succeeding as an author, but it can be sort of a magical little bubble for two years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's in, it's interesting that you said, so you left uni and you sort of, oh, like, you know, you weren't, you know, because, so, you know, some people we speak to are like, yes, I wrote my first story when I was yeah. three and I knew I immediately wanted to be a writer. And that's great. But, you know, it, it, that's that's not the case for everyone. So sort of growing up as a kid, you weren't sort of necessarily thinking, oh, like, this is what I want to do. You were just no. sort of... Yeah, I had all these dorky enthusiasms as a kid. You know, I'd get really into one thing and then another. I'd be like, now I'm into submarines or like now I'm into paleoanthropology and we're okay, going down yeah. these rabbit holes. And my mom was always kind of like, you know, maybe you should be a writer. And I was like, ew, boring, no. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, at Harvard, I took uh, a couple of creative writing classes kind of on a whim and I wrote a collection of short stories as a thesis. And it started to be like, hmm, you know, interesting. This seems to be something I can do relatively well, but I'm still terrible because I'm 19, you know. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it worked to my advantage at Iowa because I got there, I mean, not having this fixed dream of being a writer, a novelist. I got there and I was sort of like, I don't think I'm very good. I don't know if this is feasible as a career. I just need something to do. And that was a really low pressure way to come into a pretty high pressure, what can be a pretty high pressure environment. Mm-hmm. And I think for people who had had this lifelong vision of themselves winning a Nobel prize, that's, that's really hard. You know? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and for me, it was just a process of exploration and it did change. You know, I got more serious about it by the end of the first year. And by the end of the second year, I was like, well, you know, maybe I can be a writer. Um, and of course now it's a, it's very important to me. It's an integral part of my identity, but, um, yes, I think yeah. it was an advantage not to be fixed on that idea. Yes. And not to have the, yeah, the huge pressure of being like, I've been rehearsing my Nobel prize speech since <laughs> yeah. I was five. And yeah, <laughs> if I don't get this yet, yeah. no, exactly. That's a very good point, actually, that, that, that approach can maybe be more inducive to kind of creativity because you're not sort of like 
putting a lot of pressure on on yourself there. So you were you enjoyed reading. It sounds like in terms of a family environment, like a lot of reading when you were when you were younger, and of course today now you um, are sort of Maggie Shipstead, the writer. And so in terms of your reading today, what you know, what does that look like? Do you have much time for reading? And you know, if you do, what are some of the books you've read recently that have sort of stood out for you? Yeah, I do. I read every day. I'm sure my boyfriend and I live together, and we both you know read at night in bed before we go to sleep, which is nice. And and my parents always did that, which I think was a nice behavior to model too. Just like that's a way to unwind. Um, I think I mentioned my email. I just did a 220 mile hike in Northern Sweden by myself. Yes. Yes. Oh, completely by yourself. Yeah. It was, oh, wow. Okay. Wow. It was meant to be 270 miles, but my ankles were falling apart. And so I got off the trail for four days and skipped 50 miles and got back on and finished. But so I was hiking for the whole thing was 23 days. I was hiking for 19 days and sleeping in this little tiny one person tent and I was below freezing at night. And so I, all I had to do, you know, is 6 p.m. I bake camp usually, sometimes later. Eat my little dehydrated food bag, and then I have a, some hours, you know, before I could really feasibly go to sleep. And so I'd get in my tent with my phone, and I had to be sort of conscious of the battery, like I had a power pack. But I just read yeah. and read and read on my phone. Um, so I read a bunch of books during that time. I'm trying to track them all down. The last one I read on the trail was Persuasion, which I'd never read. I think it was the only Austin novel I hadn't read and I loved it. It was of course, you know. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um and I read randomly I read The Martian by Andy Weir. I was oh, just, yeah, I, had, yeah, yeah. I had downloaded it. I was just curious and it was like 300 pages of troubleshooting and I was like, oh yeah, like sure. This yeah, works. Yeah. <laughs> um what else? I read um I don't know if it's big over there. Um, Jeanette McCrudy's memoir called I'm Glad My Mom Died. She was kind oh, of a yes. child star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that's been interesting here because it's not, I don't think at the moment it's officially published in the in the UK, oh, uh-huh. but through things like uh, TikTok and, you know, th- these, yeah, yeah. these uh, social media movements, which are having a great like effect on book sales. We've we've had a couple of people order it in the shop. We can get it. It's mm-hmm. just it's the American. It's the, mm. it's 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 the American edition. Yes, and that does sound like a fascinating read. And you know, obviously, like in a difficult way, because obviously that's yeah. her life, and it was it was not um was not easy. But yeah, there's been a lot of talk about that one. Yeah, it's not harrowing because she's very funny, and I I think she wrote okay, it herself. Yeah. I don't think she had a co-writer, or ghostwriter. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's kind of, you know, old story, like abusive stage mother and, and child star, but, but I really, it was very interesting. And yeah, I like that. I reread wild because I was hiking. You know? Oh, nice. You yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Oh, nice. I'm interested in the persuasion. You must forgive me. I haven't, I haven't read seating arrangements, but from what I have, I know it's shocking, isn't it? Actually, you like, you just end the call immediately. You just disappear. And I'm like, Oh no. Do Um, your homework guys. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. But, Am I right in saying it? Because it sounds like you said Persuasion was like sort of the last Austin you hadn't read. And it sounds like you really love Austin. And Seating Arrangements is a kind of like comedy of manners, a kind of like about like from what reading the the blurb, because when um, I read um, uh, 
great circle and which we'll talk about later which i thoroughly enjoyed i obviously is something you always do you kind of look at the author's other works and you start lining up books to read so was austin like quite a big like influence on you as a writer like do you enjoy that kind of comedy of people yeah. being saying one thing but kind of you can tell something else is kind of being said between yeah, the lines. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was very young when I wrote Seating Arrangements. I was 25 when I wrote it. I was wow, 28 yeah. when it was published. Yeah. Um, so to a degree, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I mean, I really didn't know what I was doing. And <laughs> so in some ways it's hard to identify influences. Like I think the really, cause it's about this waspy family having a wedding on sort of yeah. a, a resort Island, like a fictionalized Nantucket. And I was living on Nantucket when I wrote it through a winter. It's like an abandoned freezing Island. But uh, yeah, I mean, it had, I do think Austin was an influence because it's a social satire in its way. I am, critical of the characters but I think I also you know to me it wouldn't be interesting to write critically about characters but not extend some empathy to them mm, mm, which I think yeah. is true of her as well you know there's always a tenderness even for kind of the most loathsome characters that would be unendurable in life um so yeah I mean she's in there absolutely I also at the time you know was reading a lot of kind of John Updike and John Cheever which I was thinking about a minute ago when we were talking about MFA. Another thing that's hard about coming in with this dream of being a writer is I think your dream is tethered to sort of like previous generations of writers and how things worked then. Like MFA t students tend to be a little like not super interested in, in contemporary fiction. And they're like, I want a career like that. And it's like, well, you can't have that. It doesn't exist <laughs> anymore. <laughs> um, and I, but I was still sort of innocent enough to read Cheever and Updike sort of uncritically, you know, I was like, this doesn't seem misogynist at all. And, then, and so I could also sort of, you know, just incorporated into my sort of the way I thought about fiction or about writing about these people. And, you know, and I've reread that book in the past couple of years, I had to for some reason. And, um, you know, to me, it, it seems like the work of a young person, which mm. it is, you know, and I would never write it in quite the same way. Like, I don't regret what it is, you know, and there, I'm not going to like, I don't know, it, it is what it is. But it, it's an odd experience to be like, oh, this was me 14 years ago trying to make sense of, of a world and this sort of corner of American society. So it's interesting. Mm. But yeah, and had you had... Uh, sort of short stories published before that or um or was the just a couple so when I was at Iowa I was 23 and 24 and I you know was writing short stories I met my agent my second year she was coming to the workshop to like look for people and I, I would I would never have the guts to go meet with her but the program administrator sent me to pick her up at the airport <laughs> and so she like became my agent so I always say it's like marrying the first person you go on a date with because you know <laughs> here we are and like she was on maternity leave had just come off maternity leave then and now that kid's like you know 17 yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so um why did I get that? Oh, yeah. So she took a couple of my short stories and sent them out. So I think while I was writing seating arrangements or the first draft um, was when I published my first just couple stories, you know, in tiny journals. Um, and then the year after 
I wrote it when I was on Nantucket. I had a fellowship to Stanford, which was a two-year writing fellowship. It was kind of like you're back in workshop um, in a, for two years. And when I came out of there, Seating Arrangements was published. But I wrote a bunch of stories at Stanford that also kind of ended up in, in little journals. And then after that, I wrote relatively few stories. Like my story collection came out in the spring and the most recent story in there I wrote in 2017. And the oldest oh, one okay, I yeah. wrote actually at Iowa. So it's this whole whole span. But kind of my most productive short story period was those two years at Stanford, which was 2010 to 2012. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Yes, it, when you were saying earlier about, you know, how the writing industry has changed and people kind of comparing themselves to, I feel like there was a time where you could sort of have one short story published and that would sustain you for like half a year like as in we're talking 50 years ago it feels like you know oh, yeah. just yeah and it's like those days are gone unfortunately. well and it's so funny because I was obsessed with getting a story in the New Yorker you know and a lot of my friends published stories in the New Yorker and I came really close with my first story we sent out from Iowa which is in my collection it's called the Cowboy Tango um and this editor who's not at the New York anymore kind of, t- she was like, yeah, we love this. It's a little long. I'm going to like kind of, you could semi consider it accepted. We're going to try and trim it down. And then she decided they couldn't trim it down. And so they didn't take it. And I was Aww. like, Oh, that's okay. Like I'll just, they'll take the next one. <laughs> they did not, they never did. But now, you know, it's funny. I mean, that's part of what's another thing that's challenging about being an MFA student is everything seems like the most gigantic important detail or deal. Like if your classmate has a story in like the East Nowhere review, you're like, oh, they're a famous writer now. And like, what am I? I'm nothing. And, you know, in retrospect, <laughs> it's just like, wow, is everyone so worried about like even getting a story in the New Yorker, like sad to say, kind of no one necessarily notices, like it doesn't even matter. I mean, it, it's great. Congratulations, those writers. It is very hard to do. And, and they publish a lot of wonderful stuff, but it's all such a it's a really a marathon, not a sprint, mm. which is really hard to internalize when you're a student. Yes, that kind of, you know, you have that belief that, yeah, every every kind of decision, rejection or whatever sets the, you know, sets <laughs> yeah. the path forever. And that's yeah. it. And it's, yeah, that must be, yeah, that's not, again, that's a very stressful situation <laughs> to kind of put yourself in mentally. It's um, so bad. And, um and yet, so sorry, I completely skipped over as well. This huge trek you did in Sweden, it was Sweden, wasn't it? it yeah, was Sweden. Yeah. yeah. I've got that right. And one thing I did want to ask is I've noticed with, um, you know, uh, certainly in Great Circle, there's a lot of kind of big, or it, how I saw them in my head. I mean, I've never been to Alaska, so I don't know, but I imagine kind of big open spaces, you know, re- really isolated. Is that, do you have like, a connection to those sort of places yeah yeah, that, yeah. I, I love a giant wasteland um <laughs> i i always have i've um drawn to those landscapes i mean great circle so i started writing great circle in 2014 um and right in september 2014 and, and right before i started in june 2014 i went to the arctic for the first time i went on a trip for artists to svalbard um which a lot of people know, but, you know, north of Norway, part yeah. of Norway, but like north of the Scandinavian peninsula. And, um, yeah, it was amazing. It was just this sort of thrilling look at like, oh my, this part of the world exists. Like it's here. Yes. 
Um, it's going about its business sort of without, you know, humans play a tiny role there. I mean, we play a, a much larger destructive role from afar, but in the yes. actual, like, uh, um, the living of the place, it's, it's very wild. And, and so when I started writing Great Circle, I knew very few things. I can't plot out a book in advance. So I knew that Marion okay, yeah. would disappear while trying to fly around the world north-south. And I knew she would transport warplanes in World War II, but I didn't know if she would do it in the U.S. or the U.K. And both were historically possible. And so I was like, well, you know, again, I wouldn't say writers have to go to all the places they write about. It's possible to, to do enough research, but it was important to me to see the polar regions. And so I started trying um, to get there. And mm. one thing that really ended up sort of serendipitously happening and then helping me immensely was I started writing for travel magazines in 2015. Ah, okay. And my first two assignments sort of fell into my lap. And, and one was I just knew someone who became an editor at one magazine and she offered me a, a story on Hawaii. Like, yes, you know, and Amazing. the other was because my second book was about ballet. Um, I wrote a profile of a ballet dancer for Condé Nast Traveler. Um, and then I started pitching them stories. And so the first assignment I got through and traveled on was to the New Zealand subantarctic and went there. <laughs> and then on that trip, I met someone who's an expedition leader and we were, were, I wrote a modern love in the New York times about this. People can look it up if they want, but then he took me to Antarctica after that and, um, to the Ross sea region, which is where Marion disappears. And, Almost no one goes there. It's really hard to get to. And it was this amazing transformative experience. But then, you know, I, I would pitch stories that were sort of places I wanted to go or places that spoke to me, which tend to be these sort of, you know, wildernesses. And so over time, while I was writing, um, I went, I've now been to the Arctic, I don't know, six or seven times. I've been to Antarctica twice. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Quite, been that, more. that feels in terms of like, you know, average statistically humanity wise that puts you up there in terms of the percentage <laughs> of people who are like well acquainted with the polls like that, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and it's sort of a self-fulfilling thing because once you've done a couple of then editors will be like well we need someone to like take this oh, cruise to yeah. greenland and like shipstead likes that and knows what she's talking about and and it is helpful to have sort of a uh, into integral sort of knowledge of, of these places. And it was, it was very helpful for the book, both in terms of getting a sense of the place and also, you know, I, I encounter people who are truly competent in these remote places. Mm, mm. Um, and so at home there, so driven to be there. And so they, you know, one way or another sort of inform Marion's character as well. Yeah. yeah um, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, just because reading it, you know, it felt like, you know, the descriptions, it was, um, you know, uh, one of the, the the many wonderful aspects of the book were the, the you know, these kind of the descriptions or the feeling captured of, uh, of being in these places. Because for me, yeah, Antarctica gives me a sort of, you know, it's both kind of exciting, beautiful, but also kind of gives me a, almost like a pinching feeling in my stomach of like, you know, because it's so uh you know a aliens kind of the wrong word but also at the same time it sort of fits into in terms of you know um my life in a kind of uh, a small english town you know it, it, yeah. it's suddenly somewhere that's just completely humans don't live there like full time like they, it's they... it's very alien and when you're there it's 
inescapable that it wants to kill you. Like it's inhospitable, right. yeah. you know, like when in the Ross Sea, um, I was sort of like a staff member on the ship um, because my boyfriend was the expedition leader. So I was like tending bar and helping people on and off these Zodiacs and stuff. And you could see this reaction play out a lot because that kind of travel is so expensive and requires a lot of time. So a lot of people who do it have a lot of money and are sort of used to being in charge of things. And, and you could see something would sort of go a teeny tiny little bit wrong they'd get spooked in some way or another and they'd get scared and then they'd get angry and then they'd be like, you know, lash out at whatever staff member was nearby. And it was a very human response, just Mm. trying to seek a little bit of control in this place where you're just surrounded by like glossy black freezing water. And it's so, especially that trip, we're sort of near the end of the season and I remember we made a landing near McMurdo Station and went to this historic, like an explorer's hut. And I was standing outside the hut for a few hours, like making sure the right number of people, there's only a certain number of people allowed inside at times. So I was counting people. It was the coldest I've ever been. It was just so cold. And we got on the the little Zodiac raft to go back to the ship at the end of this, this landing. And um, the ocean was freezing around us, like not going to lock it in place, but you could see the ice forming and all the smoke rising and the fuel line for the Zodiac froze. And so maybe for 20 minutes, we were just sitting there freezing our butts off while um, my boyfriend tried to fix the motor, you know, and I remember just being like curled up. And then I ran back to my, when we got back to the ship, I ran to my bunk and got under the covers and just tried to warm up. And it was like, this is summer here. (laughs) It's so cold. (laughs) And so really you feel very vulnerable and it's, it's, I mean, that's part of the beauty of being there and also part of the challenge. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, that uh, I suppose as well, you know, what, what feels so i think particularly you particularly from anyone probably growing up in the uk i think it's a bit different in the us where you still have kind of very large you mm. know somewhere somewhere where you can be x amount of tens or even hundreds of miles away from like the nearest kind of like town or even person maybe sure. whereas in the uk nah like you know you're <laughs> never more than 20 minutes away from like a supermarket like yeah. it's, it's 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 not like that you know it's somewhere like um uh, antarctica you know it's we're used to this world where kind of everyone knows where you are but that feels like somewhere where you can sort of truly vanish like the you know nature would just as it were kind of um could just swallow you up and you know obviously that kind of danger of antarctica is is featured in the book as well of the, of the potential dangers it can have um oh so so yeah it's really interesting to know that you have like a, a personal you know that place and and that does come across in in the book but of course you never know whether it's good it's good research or or <laughs> or, or like or personal experience you know there's there's yeah. no way of knowing yeah yeah i mean it was always the challenge in, in planning marion's route because in that era in 1950 there were there were no permanent settlements on antarctica so it became sort of like how do i finagle this so she could refuel twice and and i lined okay. lined her up with an expedition in east antarctica that was real and then there would have been fuel cached on the Ross shell. So I kind of had to make it work, but it was, you know, a really big if. And the other thing I did was, you know, I've, so I've been twice to the Ross Sea and then also the Antarctic Peninsula from South America, but you're just sort of on the fringe. And so I was like, well, you know, I was very curious about the interior, which is 
really hard to get to as a tourist, just prohibitively expensive. Like maybe, you know, if that assignment had landed in my lap, great. But what I ended up doing was I pitched a story to Outside Magazine about these um, pilots in our National Guard that do our polar airlift. So in the northern winter, they're in Antarctica, and in the northern summer, they train in Greenland. So I rode in the back of a cargo plane from upstate New York to Greenland, and then went with them while they landed on the Greenland ice sheet. And so I got to get out of this plane and be standing on this, you know, circle of white, just snow, and and know I'm standing on thousands of feet of ice under this dome of sky. And I was like, it's, you know, indistinguishable from what Antarctica would look like in the interior. And it was, you know, in the book, it's maybe two sentences sort of conveying that description. But to me, just the feeling of it ended up being something really important to have sort of felt and to know and very strange. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine. I can't imagine it. it must <laughs> be such- I know. Yeah. I couldn't quite either. And even having been to Antarctica before that, I was like, this is just the scale of it. You know, Great Circle, I think, as a book is very concerned with scale. And, and that was a sort of important illustration of it. And it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's it's also, uh, uh, you know, it makes you think, is it almost harder because you've been there to describe it? Because, you know, if you haven't, you know, you could imagine someone might just be a bit like, oh, I'll just say, oh, it's really cold and scary. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they're fine because they're like, I haven't been, so I don't know what, you know. Whereas actually because you've been, you know that uh, that experience of just being anywhere where it kind of like, there's a kind of a subconscious not understanding of it but kind of like experience of it that then i don't know if you can hear that it's a cruise oh, ship is it? oh okay uh, i'm in san diego oh, okay. <laughs> it's a uh, leaving oh, port lovely I, guess. I actually thought it sounded like someone um like playing a key on a piano so it doesn't <laughs> like i thought but yes yeah because you've had that actual sort of visceral physical experience of it that that you know, you, you're more attached to the description then of, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, then the temptation is to just like over describe and be like, I need to tell you guys everything I, you know, learned about Antarctica or saw there. And, and you can't do that either. That was a big part of the process with this book because the first draft took me three years and three months and it was 980 manuscript pages. Wow. So okay, yeah. this, I mean, the conversion from manuscript to typeset, you know, would shrink it anyway, but I cut more than 200 pages sort of in the process of editing. And a lot of that, there wasn't, there weren't very many big chunks I could cut. It was really more just relentlessly going through it over and over again and cutting sentences and words and progress, which when you have a thousand pages to work with, it really adds up. But a lot of that was tightening up. There was a lot of, there was some description that, that had to go by the wayside. (laughs) And my editor would leave these little notes in the margins that were like, enough. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> how many, how much description of ice can we have in one? Yeah. yeah no yeah. more snow. Yeah, no, no, please. <laughs> um, oh yeah. So that's, that's interesting. Obviously that's a common thing, you know, speaking to a lot of writers on here is that talk of, of the initial thing being bigger than what arrives kind of in the reader's hands because I, I think certainly in the UK edition I think it's around sort of 600 pages yeah. at last at, you know at last check so yeah it, it's obvious that a fair amount went but that seems like such a, a common yeah a common yeah thing. I think that's a purposeful I mean the American edition I think is the same pagination and and it's a they're purposeful in making it seem as short as it could possibly seem and it does not seem short but the, some of the translations are like they look like 
own books, they're huge. <laughs> and I don't know if it's because they're just like, you know, the spines are like four inches thick. And I, I don't know if it's because, you know, different languages are efficient in different ways, or if they're, yeah, they're yeah, yeah. if there's sort of a cachet with how the book being enormous or something, but it's really funny. I have a shelf of on my, in my house where I'm sort of accumulating the translations and the English ones look like, you know, half as long as, you know, Danish that or is, Dutch. Uh, that is interesting. Yeah. About the differences. Yeah. I'm, I always find translation fascinating because I feel like it's, I, I have a few friends who sort of do translation and it's, oh, cool. it's much more creative than I think yeah. people realize. Cause you know, if you, there seems to be a thing in the UK at the moment where we're getting a lot of um, translated Japanese fiction, there seems to be a real, uh-huh. Um, uh, kind of desire for it and also kind of you know publishers um, publishers putting it out there because of the success of previous books and I spent some time in Japan and I did a bit of learning in Japanese I wasn't very good but I did some learning and even that learning enough was to know that the languages are so different I can't imagine for a translator sitting down and going right you know languages will have words for things that take almost a whole paragraph to express in English and and vice versa. So I love that idea of your shelf of translate. It must be really lovely, I think, to see it, even if you can't comprehend, to see it kind of written in a different and go, like, my store is in there, but in a form that's not always accessible to you. I don't know, there's something exciting. Yeah, it is always really fun. And it's fun to see different covers and... um, to, I, I haven't done it with Great Circle, but with seating arrangements, I ran like the the jacket blurbs through Google Translate just to see what different <laughs> countries were emphasizing. And yes, so, okay. like, oh, okay, you know, yeah. the Italian version would be like sumptuous feasts of lobster <laughs> and wine, and then the French version was like dirty sex with old men. <laughs> like, you guys know your markets. Yeah, <laughs> give you that. <laughs> yeah, oh, that is interesting. Yes, about it's um. Uh, it's almost a bit like uh, I, I've noticed on social media a, a real interest in comparing US and UK book covers and how mm, they yeah. differ. And in that, there's a sense of kind of they must be thinking about the market, as it were, and kind of what will appeal to you know different. And that's yeah, that's always interesting. I've realized, yeah, I've realized um, we got um, waylaid slightly, but that's that's fine. That's yeah. good. part of the conversation. Didn't want to talk about for twenty no, minutes. No, we did. No, we did. We did. We absolutely did. Um, yeah, well, yeah. So you did that reading in the yeah on the on your phone in in the in the tent during this. Yeah. Um, you know, this sounds like an amazing an experience, and I imagine quite an emotional one as well. I always feel on these kind of long. I have friends who are sort of into kind of long sort of treks or, or or hikes or whatever and i don't know there's always like great highs but also like lows, Low, lows. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it um yeah it was amazing i mean i miss it my body was definitely falling apart i'd done five day treks before but you know it turns out doing four times that is is different <laughs> and um i sort of got through the last four days by just using medical tape on my bare skin and taping my ankles in like in place, like braces almost. And then, um, but yeah, it was, you know, there's such a built in sense of purpose. Like every day, if you move forward and you feed yourself and you get in your tent, that's a great day. You accomplished everything you can accomplish. And I went partly, my mom died in early July and there's such 
there's so much that's overwhelming about that kind of loss, but some of it's the communication, you know, just so much, you know, condolences and people checking in. And so I really wanted the peace and quiet and just not being reachable. Like my boyfriend could text me on my GPS device and that was it. And just being responsible for myself. And it just really gave me space, um, for my grief. And also, uh, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't thinking about her all the time. I wasn't thinking about anything. Like mostly you're just like, I'm going to step on that rock. I'm going to step on this rock. Now I'm going to step on this rock just Mm. for hours and hours every day. And when am I going to stop and what am I going to eat? And, and that's kind of the bulk of your thinking. But I think that blankness is sort of healing in itself. And I was, like I said, I I reread wild. That was the first book I read in my tent. And, And Cheryl Strait says that too. She was like, I was, for once I was like not crying. I was just thinking, I was not thinking, I was just walking and and that was the experience. So yeah, it was exactly the right thing at the right time. And it was really, really hard, but really satisfying. And I really kind of miss it now that I'm back. It sounds like, I don't know, almost like a form of, um, but through kind of your environment and what you're doing, almost like a sort of a mindfulness thing, you know, because Mm -hmm. it's kind of clearing the mind, but Mm -hmm. as opposed to, because I'm certainly not someone that, you know, if you told me to sit down and not think about anything, like my brain just unfortunately is not wide like that, but actually something like that, because you're so focused on, you know, the bear, as you said, moving and feeding yourself, that actually that kind of maybe allows that, um, space that is required because i've heard other people describe it as a kind of almost like a emotional kind of claustrophobia of you know because you've got your own feelings but also everyone else's feelings kind yes. of being directed like at you yeah. um so it sounds like yeah it sounds like a, and is that anything if you don't mind me asking that you're you're writing about this isn't related to any sort of like uh no it wasn't an assignment i mean i i will probably write about it i guess in some form but I, yeah, it was also like so often when I travel, it's, it's on assignment and I have to be sort of consolidating it into a piece, but yeah. And, and not for a book either. I, I am working on a new book, but it's, uh, it's separate from that. So. Yes. Yeah. Don't worry. I won't, I won't do too much delve into, um, cause it must be a hard question when you're writing something when people are like, Ooh, oh, it's what's okay. that yeah. I mean, everyone asks, oh, I'll tell you the, I tell, I'll tell you my three sentence thing about it. I mean, I'm, it took me a while to get going on something new and I was like, no research, no, like no more great circle research. And so <laughs> okay, it's, yeah. a, it's about a, a family in LA. Um, I'm starting it in 2019 and I haven't quite figured out how I'm going to deal with the pandemic. I think I might skip the first part of it so I don't have to write about toilet paper hoarding or whatever, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> but it's about... There's sort of a Hollywood family, so there's a bit of a connection to the Hadley part of Great Circle. But I always, I sort of start books often with questions. And so Great Circle was like, what's the difference between disappearance and death? Like, why do we process those two things so differently? And this book is what happens when two people who fundamentally don't like each other get married and stay married for decades. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. yeah. And so it's, of course, kind of my inclination is to sprawl. And so it's already sort of sprawling and now it's about like lithium mining and um, (laughs) (laughs) Instagram influencing and all these things. And, but, um, yeah, I, I I'm enjoying writing it now, which is oh good, which is nice. oh good, yeah. I never no research and then lithium yeah. mining. Oh, like, I, no, I hadn't actually <laughs> even thought about that, but stuff. yeah, yeah. <laughs> suddenly suddenly going to the library looking at what do you have on lithium mining? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, 
so yeah, so we we discussed some of the you know you've talked about wild, um, uh, which yeah, something like that is obviously like you know a kind of a classic book for uh, uh, in general, but you know for anyone who's sort of going on a journey like that. I know I felt like a little bit of a cliche reading it. But I was like, that's fine. No, it's <laughs> good to be a cliche point. sometimes. Right. You can't avoid cliche. Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's being a cliche can be very um, uh, comforting sometimes actually. So yeah. And so we talked about your last books. Now, a big question, which I always feel is is such a big one to ask one, is um, one we ask is a book that changed your life. Yeah, well, when you when you emailed me about that, I was sitting and looking at my bookshelves and I was like, I don't know, you know, and it, what caught my eye was this book, and this now connects back to Antarctica, like I managed to do with everything. Um, <laughs> it's my go-to. Um, is this book by Sarah Wheeler, nonfiction a book like sort of hybrid travel memoir and history about Antarctica called Terra Incognita. And it came out in 1999. I probably read it that year when I was 16 and I had never really thought about Antarctica. And I think that book in some ways was the root of my fascination with it. And, and she had applied to the, um, through an American program with our national science foundation, they had an artist and writers program that would send people to McMurdo station or permanent station, um, oh, wow. on the Ross Sea for, um, period of months, like through the, the Antarctic summer. And then I think she might've wintered over. I can't remember. Very few oh, people wow. do that, but it was, yeah, oh, it's dark. Um, and, uh, and it was just captivating. I was so jealous and I actually applied to that program when I was starting great circle because it's always loomed large in my mind and I was summarily rejected. But, um, yeah, I think that book and, and right around the same time I read a book called maiden voyage, which was older and as a, by a woman who, when she was maybe 19 or 20, she was, I think it was the late eighties or early nineties. She was kind of getting into trouble and, um, her mom had died, I think. And her dad said, well, you can either go to college or you can sail alone around the world. And she was like, fine, I'll sail alone around the world. Her name's Tanya Ivy. And, um, so she did, uh, and the book is a, is a memoir about it. And, and so kind of, those two books, which I think I read around the same time, sort of got in my brain, like with women traveling mm. alone, mm. you know, and then doing these adventurous things, much more adventurous than I will ever do, the, the sailing in particular. But yeah, I think those, um, coupled with some traveling I did with my mom as a teenager, kind of instilled in me this idea of like, well, you can just go, like, if you want to go mm. badly enough, like you can find a way to do it one way or another. And, and that I think I'm realizing kind of more as I get older, like really did determine, you know, the course of my life to a degree. Um, And I think, yeah, I would say those books stick out to me more than any fiction really. Okay. As something, yeah. As something that, yeah. Sort of planted a seed by the sounds of it, particularly the Terra Incognita one. Like that sounds like that really, yeah. Something stuck in there and hasn't, yeah, I, I find yeah. that with the polar regions, because, you know, with the, all the travel I've done in those places, often on ships, you know, people usually travel in couples, you know, not mm-hmm. always, of course, there are plenty of solo travelers, but usually it's couples. And so often, one of them has this deep, intuitive pull toward the poles and the other kind of mm. doesn't care, but is being a good sport. And that's so often <laughs> the way it is. I think people either just like, it gets under your skin 
and you're obsessed and you're drawn back again and again, or you're sort of like, I don't know, it's fine. It's cold. Um, and that, that seems to really often divide within a couple and not, not according to any consistent, um, gender lines, just, yeah, just usually one or the other. That's interesting then, because of a bit like all this you were saying earlier with, um, people either going into writing with the whole like, oh, no, this is my life. And, you know, if X, Y doesn't happen, then that's terrible. And people who just sort of develop it over time. I wonder if there are for some people who are like drawn to it, whether there's, you know, higher emotions. Mm. It. And then the people who kind of discover it are like, oh, wow, this is like, it, it's transformative in a different way, because they haven't had that that like yeah yeah that's really astute and i think that's really true that actually happened um when i go on a cruise for a magazine i can always bring a guest which is the most amazing thing in the world because it's let me give sort of this gift to my friends and so i brought a friend to on a cruise to greenland and the canadian high arctic and he's like very much a city city mouse and had never thought about that part of the world and yeah it blew his mind and then i took when i went to the antarctic peninsula i took my mom with me and it was just a game changer for her. I've never seen anyone just so like joyously embrace a place. And she found Mm. this affinity with penguins. She didn't know she had to the point where when she came back, she changed the license plate on her car to be Gentoo, which is a species of penguin. (laughs) These little naughty penguins, Gentoo penguins. And she was just like, I am a Gentoo penguin. And I was like, okay, well, they're pretty silly, but sure. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. People sort of, um, you know, it's, it's something that to kind of be fully considered has to be experienced that, you know, people can go their whole lives kind of being like, Oh, you know, why would I go there? Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and then kind of not, um, and then go and kind of suddenly it kind of sticks with them. And I mean, what you were, the other aspect of what you're saying is true as well. I think some people go in with this, like, this is my, you know, I've been wanting to go my whole life and see this hut, you know, that Ernest Shackleton, stated oh, and, yes. yeah. and sometimes those high expectations can make the experience very difficult because if things aren't perfect they're like it it's there's this sort of sense of crumbling not not for everyone i mean i've seen people also fulfill lifelong dreams there and be with nothing but happiness but for some people it's just like it doesn't match you know like how you hear about yeah. people going to paris with this vision of what it's like and then falling into depression because it's actually like a modern city <laughs> yeah. it's it's not you know yeah it's not the great sort of romance that it is and um yeah which is again like so interesting how yeah we experience things through other people's kind of ideas or the scrubbed up versions and then they're not um you know they're not quite um how they seem and you know certainly coming from the uk like again i would have never really thought about kind of wide open spaces very often and then i remember seeing um central australia and just kind of being like oh my god what what?" (laughs) (laughs) and and that's interesting as well because obviously in terms of um you know the um uh the indigenous people who who live there you know live there for tens of thousands of years and yet you know plonk me in that and oh dead in probably less than 24 hours you know oh yeah no same you know and you know it's and so that's interesting because it is a human it is a human landscape and yet for many like coming to that they would be you know the initial reaction would almost be like a kind of low level 
sort of terror almost <laughs> it's just yeah. so it's so it's so alien again alien yeah, is the word yeah. that I can, sublime um, terror well and antarctica you know is unique and not being a human landscape but the arctic is mm-hmm. you know the inuit yes. have yeah, survived yeah. sustainably really for thousands of years and you know you see it over and over again like with the rediscovery of um you know, John Franklin's missing ships in the past decade. Oh, yes. And yeah, and they yeah. were exactly where the Inuits said they would be. But like nobody, people were like, oh, yes. and it's, you know, disregarded this sort of information yeah. over the years. And then finally, you know, it turns out it's true. And- yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's again, like Australia and, you know, I- indigenous um, uh, kind of land management techniques. Suddenly everyone said, oh, actually what we were doing before mm. is really bad. And actually what <laughs> they were doing, you know, surprise, surprise, the people who had, you know, kind of had a, you know, uh, uh, a relationship with the landscape, yeah. as a, you know, and one that wasn't based on kind of like subjugation, you know, have, a, you know, actually knew, you know, how to look after it and kind of live there sort of harmoniously. Um, so obviously that brings us, you know, we talked about the books that change your life and you mentioned Terra Incognita and that, that link with, um with, with, well, with both, uh, both the poles. Um, and so that does, I think, bring us nicely to Great Circle, um, which, as I said, your most recent book actually out in the UK is that collection of short stories that, um, you know, again, our listeners will be able to uh, get from the shop online or um, with um, any of your local sort of uh, indie bookshops as well. Um, but uh, Great Circle is is the one I think, you know, sort of most um, people listening to this w- would, I think, kind of first think of. And so for those who are maybe coming across Great Circle for the first time, would you mind sort of, you know, giving giving you sort of short, you know, that like that three line one you gave me yeah. earlier, you know, your short introduction to Great Circle. Absolutely. Yeah. Great Circle is about a female pilot who's fictional. I feel like I should specify like the Google yes. uh, suggestions for my name. It's all of them are like, Maggie Shipstead is Marion Graves real. And some people will text me and they're like, I love the book. I'm off to learn everything I can about Marion Graves. I'm like, well, you already have. Um, (laughs) So it's this fictional female pilot who disappears while trying to fly around the world north south in 1950. Um, But it starts with her actually before her birth. Um, It goes through her childhood learning to fly in Montana and a lot in Montana in the twenties. And she flies in Alaska in the thirties. She flies warplanes for the air transport auxiliary in the UK during world war II. Um, And then it's interwoven with the story of a contemporary modern movie star named Hadley Baxter, who is playing Marion in a biopic about her life and sort of gets drawn into this question of, what happened to her and also who she was and, and how you go about constructing a story about someone, especially someone who is real. Mm. And, and there's two things there that um, I definitely, you know, want to discuss is that firstly, the fact that yes, we've, we've heard this about people Googling um, Marianne kind of, you know, wanting to find out and, you know, that must be, I don't know, is there, you know, is there a bit of a kind of, you know, a nice sort of smugness there of like, you know, people like people have read this and and left thinking, actually, you know, this is this is a real person I want to find out more of. Like, is that have you enjoyed yeah. that? Yeah. Well, it's puzzling in a way. Um Although I guess it makes sense because there are lots of books that are just sort of fictionalizations of real people. Like there's the Paul McLean book about Beryl Markham, which I thought was 
honestly a little bit odd just because Beryl Markham had written a classic book about herself. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it does, I guess it, it seems like good evidence that the character feels real, um, which of course is what you're always trying to do. So it is, it's flattering. It's funny. Yeah. The other one is Marion Graves obituary. That always comes up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, again, you've, you've read it. You'll be busy with many other things, but one day maybe you should just write the obituary oh, no. and Get, yeah. you'd, get loads, you'd get loads of website views, wouldn't you, from like all yeah. the people like um, looking up. And the other one, Hadley, is uh, such another. It would be easy to focus on, you know, Marianne, because everything sort of conver- like converges on her. Mm-hmm. But Hadley's also, an, you know, this other sort of brilliant character. You know, where does that? Because you can describe the sort of the Marianne part of the book, to, uh, book, and then when you're talking about the other one, you know, what's so wonderful about them is even though obviously they're linked, they feel so separate. You know, we've got this kind of, uh, you know, sort of actress living in LA, which feels kind of very, yeah, very contemporary and very something that people were like, oh yeah, I, like I know what you mean by that. Whereas Marianne's story is like, oh, like all oh, this sounds, you know, and how did those, yeah, how did those two stories come together? Like where did, wh- yeah, how did they merge? Or- well, that was one of the great difficulties of writing the book. So yeah, in my initial concept of it I didn't have Hadley and I think I've been writing for about a month and just one day I sat down and I wrote a section on Hadley's voice where she's leaving this nightclub with publicly cheating on her co-star boyfriend and getting busted oh, yes. and yeah, it yeah. had nothing on the surface that connected it to what I was starting to write about this pilot or at that point I was writing about like the ship launch you know and um but it, to me, it just felt like the missing piece. And I'd written a short story that's in my collection, also kind of in a movie star's voice. And I liked the intensity of the voice. And I liked being able to play with sort of widely known celebrity gossip. So you're sort of starting not from zero, but from something people are familiar with. And in the case of Hadley, it's sort of like Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson when they were yeah. Yeah, in yeah, Twilight. Yeah. You know, yeah. people projected so much onto them. What an impossible burden for these yes. two extremely young people. I think Kristen Stewart was still a teenager. And um, so Hadley kind of became... I mean, I started writing it partly just because I thought it was fun and would be interesting. And it was something I could write with relatively little research um, and allowed me to be playful and have more humor and also sort of this acidity to the book. Um, But as the book sort of developed, it also became this lens on like the reader has a really intimate look at Marion's life. And then Mm. Hadley is trying to reconstruct it from 70 years on through the sort of game of telephone, like the logbook. It's made into a novel, which is being made into a movie that Hadley's in. And it's sort of like so much is lost when someone dies, you know, and as Hadley says somewhere in the book, it's like you have to pick a version of the story and commit to that. And so, I don't know, some, like when we were trying to shorten the book, when it was still a thousand pages, of course, one of the ideas was like, what if we just got rid of Hadley? And, and some people really don't like the Hadley parts. Like I've had questions at live events where someone's like, were you glad you included Hadley? <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, I'm like wow. yeah, I think so. Uh, it, it tends to be a little bit generational, but not, not oh, strictly so. Yeah. Um, but to me, you know, I, di- I also didn't want to write like this just loaf of solid historical fiction. It was it was a different kind of book to me. But Hadley, like Marion's part of the book, was more or less intact throughout drafting it. Kind of the first draft and what it is now are not very different. Whereas Hadley, I had to take a couple runs at. And it was partly because of what you're describing, like, how do you connect them 
in a way that's not too kind of cute and neat, um, but is meaningful. And, and I sort of put in, you know, these concrete connections between them, like, you know, being raised by their uncles and sort of parents who sort of vanished. Oh, um, yes. Not yeah, because yeah. I think that's necessarily important, but because Hadley would see it as like Hadley's looking for what's in this for her. Like Marion yes. is sort of like tarot cards to her or something. She's like, what is the universe telling me through this woman? And, and I wanted her to, to see that from the beginning. And then over the course of the book, I think Hadley becomes ever so slightly less self-absorbed and like understands that this Marion's life was actually for Marion, not for her. And, and um, yeah, that was, that was really complicated. And it was also something I didn't realize until fairly recently is like it, the book has been optioned for a TV series, whether that means it'll be made into a TV series, very big if, but the, yeah, yeah, I talked yeah. to the writer who's working on it and she was like saying how Hadley's story in some ways is much more difficult to translate to TV, which I hadn't thought of. And Hadley's arc is indeed very internal in a way that mm. Marion's is very mm. action oriented. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, that's true. You know, you think of it as, or I thought of it as being visual, um, but it's kind of not. It's really uh, the headspace of this one woman. So, yeah. But they also are like, I, I also was comfortable with leaving. Like, I'm always asked, well, what are you saying about, you know, modern women with Hadley versus Marianne? And I'm like, I'm more just sort of putting this out there. It's like a cheese plate and you can do with it what you want. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, yeah, I think there can be an, an overemphasis sometimes on like, when a you know when a writer does something like what are they saying about this and i don't know i that it doesn't doesn't always have to be the case like some you know sometimes it's you know part of the story and yeah um oh that's interesting that there's been a sort of a bit of a you know a divide or you know different people have you know reacted to the to mm. the Hadley sort of segments uh, i think for me um i really enjoyed it because i think as well we're very familiar particularly at the moment of you know the kind of the hollywood biopic of you know of someone and and what that and every time that happens you know there's always a discussion about like well actually they've completely ignored this part of their lives or they've they've scrubbed out anything that kind of would make it difficult to sell to like different market like you know that they they clean the person up or that or they do certain things so i think i don't know that that seemed such a nice you know a nice thing to kind of that we've got you know, we're experiencing, we're kind of in on Marianne's life in, in a way that uh, like uh, other people aren't that kind of right. joy as a reader that you get of kind of like you're, you're in on it. Like, you know, what's kind of the situation. And then we're sort of seeing Hadley trying to like sort of find that, you know, for herself when, you know, as you say, like when someone's, um, you know, either or either died or disappeared has, you know, um, becomes, not impossible well sort of impossible to kind of know yeah. what we know as the reader so for me yeah like beautiful and kind of like work perfectly but you know it's interesting i can see why maybe some people would you know love one thing and not you know and not the other but again that's what makes i don't know like in an interesting book that's is, the way it you know, goes yeah, yeah, fact, <laughs> yeah. Like, you know it, you can't if you were pleasing everyone then you might sort of be like oh okay like I don't know I, I feel that's like what I tell myself yeah I mean <laughs> also I think if you know you're used to reading a ton of historical fiction this would be a little frustrating and and I didn't when I started writing I didn't think oh now I'm writing historical fiction and it sort of snuck up on me that that is in fact what I wrote <laughs> um 
But yeah, and it, it just, you know, I also made peace fairly early on with it being sort of everything but the kitchen sink book, like the sections in it that are incomplete histories and have sort of like geological time. And I was just like, I'm just gonna go big, you know, and it's a book about too bigness. And I think that's in there in a meta way too with Jamie's paintings. He's trying to, how do you translate this whole, like what you see in one visual field, you can't put on a canvas. And it's the same thing with the book or movie, the challenge that Hadley has as well. It's just nothing life is not really compressible um, in a one-to-one way. And so art is, uh, is entirely about making choices and there's sort of infinite mm. choices to be made. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel, yeah, the, the expanse of the novel, you know, I, I loved when reading it, you come across a chapter, which is about the geological history of the area Marianne's growing up in. And, you know, that's, yeah, that, you know, that's, that's fantastic. And yeah, I was interested in what, because as you say, it starts kind of before she's born, you know, we meet, it's actually the people we're meeting are the people that will Im- employ her father, if that's, if that's yeah, the, yeah. First, the first people. So, yes. you know, there's these kind yeah. of like, we're meeting kind of, there's different layers to it. And, you know, that as you say, there's a great sort of expanse to it. And did that just become natu- come naturally because of the sort of, you know, the great expanse of her of her journey, you know? Yeah. I mean, so much of it just comes down to random impulses in the moment, especially because I don't, I can't plot in advance. I think I would love to, like, it just doesn't work for me. And so it's like, if I'm like, I know, or the first part of the book I wrote is the beginning, which is an excerpt from Marion's log book before she disappears. And so in some ways I was reverse engineering the character, like, okay, she would be born around here. How would this child become this woman? Like, what's that life like? And, but somehow I also had had this idea about this ocean liner sinking. And so I was like, I'm just going to put it in like, um, which again, like, you know, sometimes with novels, people will be like, well, is that necessary? And it's like, no, but nothing about a novel is necessary. That's sort of, it's a very capacious <laughs> form. Yeah, like that's yeah, the point yeah. of it. You can, you can put stuff in and. So it really evolved kind of bit by bit. And then, yeah, the first incomplete history I wrote was the one about Missoula. And I'd spent two months in Missoula before I started writing when I wasn't even planning on setting the book there. Uh, And I was hiking and on the hillsides, you can see these weird sort of terraces almost. And I was like, what are those? And then I was hiking and I came across a marker that said, this is the high water mark, like thousands of feet up. Um, of Glacial Lake Missoula. And so then I realized that the lines I'd seen on the hillsides were tidal lines from the different levels this Uh. glacial lake had been at thousands of years ago. And it just like blew my mind. And so, you know, I I put it in the book and um, the sitting in the water grizzly section about this native person who we would now call transgender. um, He was a real person. I came across him in my research and sort of these explorers, you know, records and the one thing that got cut in that was a significant chunk was I had an incomplete history of Antarctica that started in oh. geological time, but it was like 500 pages in the book. And my editor was like, you know, you've just asked people to read 500 pages. Plus, I don't think they want to see this sentence. That's like 30 million years ago. <laughs> you know, and I was like, that's probably true. <laughs> um, it's, um, I, I will say I'd totally read that again. I know I'm saying like, release the obituary, like, you know, do this, like, you know, all this, all this additional um, material, maybe there'll be a sort of, um, you know, it, like kind of the Lord of the Rings films that can be like a, a, the writer's cut of the, of great circle one day. But, um, 
but yes, that's um, you know, that's wonderful because then there's a great sort of sense in the book about how these kind of big spaces, you know, th- that history is, you know, geological history is on such a big scale. It's like, how do you even comprehend that? But then it's it, it's really wonderful to see that done of like, oh, but actually this has, you know, both the character, but also your life. Like this has an actual effect on like kind of the life you live and like the food you eat or, you know, whatever. So again, there was a really nice sort of like incorporating people into these kind of big kind of almost unfathomable landscapes and motions, but actually realizing that, you know, the effect that they, yeah, that that has on, on people was a, was a, a lovely element of it. Maggie, I've realised I've kept you far longer than I originally <laughs> said I would. Um, it's been it's been really it's been really lovely uh, chatting. For those of you out there who haven't read Great Circle, I cannot recommend it enough. It's a, it's it's a wonderful novel, and it it really just kind of pulls you in and doesn't doesn't release you until uh, uh until the end it it's available uh in our store on our website and as i said as well from your um from any lo- uh, local independent in the uk and abroad as well as maggie's most recent um uh, book you have a friend in 10a which is a collection of short stories maggie shipstead thank you so much for joining us on mostly books meets oh, thank you it was a pleasure all of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.